0: of overreacting from time to time, and by overreacting, I simply mean that we respond more emotionally or forcibly than really is actually justified, which means if you are parents with little children, you live in the world of overreaction. Uh, Just about a week ago, my my wife heard a blood-curdling scream coming from the living room, and as most moms do, she rushes in to find out who has been sawn in two, uh, only to find just one of our children slumped over in the middle of the floor, uh, crying, weeping, gnashing of her teeth uh, in the middle there and, and my, my wife is trying to figure out what in the world happened and she points to the TV screen and and she, and, and she begins to cry out "Sophia, Sophia and my wife is like, do you want to watch Sophia? Sophia is on the television set right now. And she goes, no, different Sophia, different Sophia. And so that's an example of over-exaggeration. The only way that response would be appropriate is if she had been attacked by a pack of ravenous dogs. That's, that's the only way that would be appropriate. But as parents, we can't be too hard for our kids because the truth is we're not exempt from overreacting from time to time. And by overreacting, parents, I mean you men. And uh, there's probably not just, there's probably more than one man who has come home from a long day at work and, and, and come home and seen the single sock left in the middle of the floor and all of a sudden, for whatever reason, went off. And all of a sudden, they call everybody in the whole, the whole family meeting. Everybody gather around, and they begin to talk about how clearly, because of this one sock, we can tell that nobody appreciates anything that he does around here. And they begin to lecture and let everybody know and set them straight and understand that having socks is not a right, it's a privilege that there are little kids all over the world who would love to have socks like them, would love to throw the socks up in the air just to, just to have some socks. They would be so joyful. And now, to be able to help all of them, you're going to take all their socks away until they can learn to truly be grateful for what it is that they have been given. Now, the strange thing for us, man, is at that point, we feel completely right about all of this. We feel like we are completely justified. Of course, everybody else is looking at us. Amen. <laughs> sinner. And, uh, 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 just joking, but I like the amen. Uh, anyway, and so, so we feel completely justified while everybody else sitting there going clearly an overreaction. We think that we've really shown them, and they're thinking, bro, it's a sock, right? That's what they're thinking, over-exaggeration. We all do it, and usually we do it um, for a couple different reasons. Sometimes we do it because we don't get our way. Sometimes we do it because we feel like we're not in control, Sometimes we do it because we just overthink or overemphasize the significance of the things that are actually happening before us. If you were just to give a cursory reading, kind of like what we did in the beginning of the service in 2 Samuel chapter 6, it's easy just to kind of walk away from it and begin to think to ourselves that maybe God, this is an example of God overreacting. I mean, here's a man by the name of Yuza that seems to be innocent enough, seems to do the right thing. He reaches out, he touches a box, and God strikes him dead. So the question for us, is this an over-exaggeration or is this a just action? Well, we know enough of the Word of God to know that God is always just in everything that He does... He's never overblown. He never loses his temper. He never strikes out in a fit of rage. He's always controlled and he always acts appropriately to whatever it is that's ultimately happening at the particular time. He never has a Sophia moment. He never has a Socks moment. He is always just in all he does. Now, in order to understand that from this text and not to think that he is just over exaggerating, I think there are a few things that we need to understand. The first thing we need to understand from the text is that this was no ordinary box. This was no ordinary box. Now, follow along in your story, if you will, in verse 1. The Bible says, David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and he went with all the people who were with him from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Now, immediately before these events in chapter 6, understand that in chapter 5, David had actually encountered the Philistine army not once, but actually twice, and defeated them on both occasions. But on the second encounter, David not only defeated them, but he stole their gods and he destroyed their gods. Now, one thing you need to know about a man, don't mess with his gods. They have a way of retaliating when you mess with their gods gods, all right, when they mess with their stuff. And so David understood this, and so he understands that, that he needs to protect whatever it is that is holy to him. And his mind begins to gravitate towards the Ark of the Covenant, which was the most holy item that the Jewish people had. And he begins to think, where did we leave that Ark of the Covenant? Oh, there it is. And it's up in the northwest corner of the country. And he gathers 30,000 men together to go and get it and bring it back to the city of Jerusalem. We pick up in verse 3. He says, and they carried the ark of God and a new cart, and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill, and used it in Ohio. The sons of Abinadab were driving the new cart, and the ark of God and Ohio were before the ark. So they go and they get it. My question is, why do they make such a big deal about it? Why 30,000 men? Certainly 10 men can go and whip this thing up on a cart and to be able to bring it back. Why 30,000 men to retrieve the box? Here's why. This is no ordinary box. This is the Ark of the Covenant. This is the object that was most closely associated with the very presence of God more than any other item, a uh, religious item that they had. And so, what we understand is biblically, theologically, let's move over just for a minute and think theologically here. The Bible teaches us that God is omnipresent. That simply means that there, he's everywhere. There is no place that God is not. That's what the Bible teaches. We hear David call out in Psalm 139, verse 7, which says, Where shall I go from your spirit? We just sang this, by the way. Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. What is he saying? There's nowhere I can go without the presence of God being there. But with this understood, that God is omnipresent, that he's all places, We also have to understand that He is not in all places to the same degree. That means that He doesn't manifest His presence in the same way to the same degree in all places. We would say that God is here amongst us this morning. Amen? Right? We'd say He's here among us. But we would also say that He's not here with us as He is in heaven. And that's why we want to go to heaven. We experience a little bit of him, him here. We're going to experience a whole lot of him to a much greater degree when we're with him for all eternity. Would you, you see the difference? He's everywhere, but he's not in all places to the same degree. And this is what David is doing. David knows that God is with him. Spirit of God is on him there in Jerusalem. He experienced the presence of God. But guess what? It's not enough. If there's a place where God is more, the presence of God is more, he wants it. That's why he goes and he takes the Ark of the Covenant and he brings it back. Now, there's significance to the presence of God with this Ark. And there's three specific areas that we know. First of all, the presence of God in its significance is seen in God's reign with the presence of the Ark. See, the Ark of the Covenant was often referred to as the throne of God or or the footstool of God. What do kings do on thrones? They rule and they reign This was the throne of God. When it was amongst the people, it was demonstrating that the people were being reigned and submitting themselves to the reign of God. But it's not only the significance of his reign, but also the significance, uh, once again, of his reconciliation. The Ark of the Covenant was also what we refer to as the, the mercy seat of God. And this is where on the, high, on the Day of Atonement, high priests would go in, having sacrificed, an animal would take the blood and they would begin to sprinkle it upon the mercy seat in order to appease the righteous wrath of God away and turn it away from his people so that God could continue and dwell in the midst of their presence. So we have rain, we have the reconciliation, but we also have revelation. And that is within the, 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 the Ark of the Covenant itself rested the Ten Commandments, the two tablets that God had written with his own finger on, on tablets, and it was in there. We also know from the Old Testament that Moses, when he was seeking uh, direction from God, would go into the tabernacle and he would stand there next to the Ark of the Covenant and God would speak and communicate and reveal to him God's will and what he ultimately wanted them to do. So this presence of God represented God's reign, God's represent, God's uh, reconciliation, as well as God's revelation to the people. And by David wanting to go and to retrieve the ark, this is significant. Because what he's saying is, he's saying... I don't want to refer to God or to talk to God or, or, or to call on him only when I'm in the midst of trouble. I want God in the middle and the center of my life, of my kingdom, of everything I do. I want God at the very center. That's the significance of the move of what he does. But here's the question that I have. I know that's happening inside the text, but here's the question that comes to mind. Why in the world did it take so long? Why did it take these people so long to go and get the ark that was stashed in left field, literally out in left field, on the northwestern part of the country? What took them so long to go and to get what they believed was the presence of God and have him dwell among his people? When we look back to 1 Samuel, early in 1 Samuel, we find that the Philistines had actually captured the ark. It's actually a really enlightening story. They capture the ark, they bring it back uh, to their country across the border, and all of a sudden everybody begins to get sick. People look at it and they die. People begin to get tumors. People begin to suffer from hemorrhoids. And they're sitting there going, we don't like this box. Send it back. So they get the box. They basically send it just a couple miles back over to the border. They just drop it off and say, you can have it. And from that point on, it it remains in this same city, Cariath-Jerim, for all of this time from the time that Samuel was a young boy all the way through his ministry through Saul King Saul the ark remained there and the only time that they end up going for it is during uh, King David's reign. In 1 Chronicles chapter 13 in verse 3 said then he says then let us bring again the ark of our God to us for we did not seek it in the days of Saul We can't be too hard on Saul. We know that he did the will of God for the most part. We know that he was the king. We know that he was defending his people. We know that he acted like a king by leading them into the different battles, protecting God's people. But you know what he did? He did a lot of that apart from who? God. He would seek God's advice, but only when he got in trouble. He would call on God and in the midst of it when he couldn't do it on his own might. Well, guess what he would do? He would call out and he would try to seek God. But the problem for him and the reason that his whole ministry ended the way that it did was because it was not centered upon the person of God. David comes up and says, you know what? I don't want to do anything apart from God. I don't want to move. I don't want to go. I don't want to think. I don't want to presume unless God is at the center of all that we do. I remember um, when I was thinking about marrying Larissa. And uh, I remember it very clearly because I was freaking out about it. I was sitting back going, man, is this the woman that I should uh, uh, should marry? Now, in hindsight, I'm thinking if anybody was willing to marry me, I shouldn't have thought about it. I should have just said, I do. Uh, however, with my wife, though, I, I remember just really struggling, you know, and you know how you do, and uh, where you're like, is this the right one? Is this God's person for me? And... Then you learn theology and you kind of don't think in some of those same ways. But anyway, a whole other thing. And I remember just talking with a gentleman, wise, wise gentleman. And he basically said to me, he goes, Hey, Mike, he goes, This is the way that I look at it. I think you're looking at it the wrong way. He goes, No matter who you marry, you're pretty much going to do the same things with them as with anybody else. He goes, In other words, you're going to get married, you're going to go on a honeymoon. You're going to come back. You're going to fight for a year. He goes, you're going to, he goes, he goes you're basically going to uh, try to live your life. He goes, if it's the Lord's will, you'll try to have some children. Lord's will, you'll have some children. You'll try to raise them. You'll get a job. You'll buy a house. You'll buy a bunch of cars, overpriced cars. You'll lose your shirt on it. You'll get frustrated. You'll go and you'll do all these things. Finally, you'll retire from a job thinking, hey, we finally made it. And you realize you can't afford to uh, retire. Then you'll just be grumpy for the rest of your life. And he goes, so this is basically what your life is going to look like. I'm like, that's so encouraging. I can't can't wait. And he goes, but here's my point. He goes, what you realize is you're going to do that with no matter who you marry. He goes, so it's not so much about what you're going to do when you get married. It's about who you do it with. That makes all the difference in the world. Let me tell you something. God's people, you and I, do a whole lot of things apart from the God that we say that we worship. We even do a lot of things that we say that we're doing for him. We serve. We go. We do. We try to work on our marriages. We try to do all different types of stuff. And the saddest thing in the world is for God's people to be able to do it apart from an intimate, close relationship with a Father God, and that is exhausting. And what this does is just a reminder to us: is this is that the Christian life is not primar- primarily about all the things that we do. The Christian life is not primarily about all the things you do or you're supposed to do or that you are attempting to do. The Christian life is not centered around the fact that you want to have a godly marriage. It doesn't center around you wanting to be able to raise godly kids. It doesn't center around you wanting to use and be used of God to propagate the gospel around the world for the glory of God. You say, well, aren't these all good things? They're very, very good things, but none of them are good doing them apart from God. None of them are good without walking with Him and walking in His presence and loving God and, 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 and seeking Him in, in every aspect. Where God wants us to be, where He wants you and I to be, is to sit back and say, you know what? There's areas in my life that the truth of the matter is, is God's just not in it. He's not in my finances. He's not in my marriage. He's not, I'm not seeking him for the direction. Oh, you may, like Saul, maybe call out to God when you're in a pickle, when you're in trouble in difficult times, but that's not what it looks like to be able to live this life with God in a healthy, vibrant relationship with God. You know what it looks like? It looks like what David's doing right here. And what we find is I love what Moses how Moses responded. God told him, He says, I want you to go somewhere. Here's how Moses responded, and I think this is a, a great statement that we need to adopt ourselves. He said, if you're present. Presence will not go with me. Do not bring me up from here. In other words, if you don't go with me, I'm not going to go. I don't want to do anything apart from God. We've been talking about building here. I don't want to build without God. I don't want to lead without God. I don't want to preach without God because I've done it all before apart from him and it ends in a disaster and it seems to be frustrating and it seems to be empty. But the truth of the matter is the thing that is more fulfilling than anything else is doing everything I do with Christ at the very center, amen? This was no ordinary box. Number two, this was no uh, innocent act. No innocent act. Look at verse five if you will. And David and all the house of Israel were making merry before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. Now, theologically, I'm not exactly sure exactly what all making merry uh, with the Lord means, but I assume it means that they were celebrating, that they were cheering, and certainly they were celebrating all the right reasons here. And the reason that they're celebrating is because God, who was for once off in left field is now at the center of everything that they are doing, something that we should celebrate. And it's the same emotion that we experience when we're praying with somebody that we know that's not walking with the Lord. Maybe one time they did and they've fallen away and we're praying for them we're praying (coughs) that God would get their attention, and when God does get their attention, and they repent, and they come back, do you know the joy that you end up experiencing at that moment? Well, take that joy and multiply it a couple hundred thousand times, because the whole nation of Israel has now taken God from out in left field, and now put it central, and they don't want to do anything away from Him. No wonder they're celebrating, but this celebration doesn't last very long. In fact, it ends almost as quickly as it begins. Notice verse 6. And when they came to the threshing floor of Nikon, Yuza put out his hand to the ark of God and, and took hold of it. <clears throat> for the oxen stumbled, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uza, and, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of God. Let's be really honest. This is not a verse or a passage that we usually whip out when we're trying to share the gospel of Jesus Christ and win people for the kingdom. Usually it's John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. Right? We don't usually pull out Second Samuel chapter six, verse six. The Lord and the anger of the Lord kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down because of his error. In fact, we try to stay away from such passages as far as we possibly can. We try to just kind of gloss over it. Sometimes we erroneously begin to try to explain it away. And somebody might say, well, that's the God of the Old Testament and not the God of the New Testament. And this is all very interesting to me. Because where you and I seem to be so incredibly worried about God's reputation, God doesn't seem to be so concerned at all. In fact, what's interesting to me is if, if the Bible truly is God's revelation to us to teach us who he is, what he has done, and what he has required, then he uses passage just like this one in Yuza because he, he wants to make sure that we understand that what concerns him the most is we see an, a, 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 an accurate picture of who he is. That's more important than, than simply trying to endear himself to us. By showing us things in the word of God that that you and I ultimately want to see. In other words, you and I might sit back and take the text of scripture and say, well, let's not deal with that right now. Well, let's not talk about that right now. Let's not deal with it because it seems as though God is this angry God. And we don't want anybody who doesn't believe that thinks that God is an angry God. We want him to be this happy God, this joyous God, this loving God. And he is all of those things. But guess what else he is? He's a just God. He's a just God. And so we're all afraid of all of these things, but oftentimes we we don't even want to mention this, but God has no problem with mentioning it because He would rather you know who He is than try to placate you to tell you what it is that you think you want to know about God. And so what we find here is the struggle with a story like this is it just seems harsh, right? Just too harsh. I mean, The the penalty of death seems to way outdo what this poor guy is doing. I mean, let's think about what else was he supposed to do. He was behind the ark. It was about to fall off. I mean, why wouldn't he reach out to be able to keep this thing from falling and shattering into a million pieces? Can you imagine if he didn't try to help? Do you know what everybody would say? Well, there's you, the guy that dropped the ark. He's the one that ruined it for all of us. We used to have God dwelling upon us, but now his spirit seeped out because he's not contained in there anymore. There's the guy, Yuza, for the rest of humanity. His name would be used to let people know if you ever were in danger of dropping something of great worth, they would say, don't use it. Don't use it. Oh, he just pulled a Uza. He just dropped it. Everybody would know. And so it seems, what else was this guy supposed to do? It just seems like a very innocent act, trying to reach out, trying to be able to help something. But the Bible teaches and has a completely different light to this. It says that, in fact, what is going on here is not so much that Yuzah innocently did something, instead that Yuzah sinned against the clear commands of God. God had already commanded and went to great lengths in the book of Numbers to lay out upon upon the law of letting them know exactly how they were to handle the Ark of the Covenant. And they were taught and they were warned there that they were not to touch it. They They weren't to transport on an ark. They were instead, in Numbers chapter 4 and verse 15, they were to transport it on poles that were carried by Aaronic priests. They were not to touch the Ark of the Covenant, Numbers 15, because anybody who would touch the Ark of the Covenant would be put to death. Later in the chapter of Numbers chapter 15, we find out that they weren't even supposed to look on the Ark because of its holiness. Instead, they were to wrap it in a veil so that nobody would accidentally look at the Ark and die because of the holiness of God. So this is how it was supposed to be handled. It wasn't supposed to be such a comfortable thing. Hey, throw it on the Ark. If it falls off, just grab it, just whip it up on there. God had clearly warned them. People would look at this and go, where's God's love? It's all over the place. God's love is in the do-nots. He's telling us, do not do this, because if you do this, you will hurt yourself. With Adam and Eve, he told them very clearly, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for the day that you do, you will surely die. The commands are the same exact way. In the New Testament, it sounds like this. It says that that whoever sinned, the the consequences of sin is what? Is, Is death. This is what the Bible ultimately teaches, and and this is what we find. So we find that this sin was no innocent act. Instead, it was a rebellion against God. What does it teach us specifically? I think it teaches us this. God striking down Yuza is a much-needed reminder to Christians of our day, of our day, of our time, of our culture, that God takes the issue of holiness seriously. It was not something that he took seriously just before you were a believer in Jesus Christ. He takes it seriously when you are a believer in Jesus Christ. This isn't a warning to a lost world. It's a warning to God's people. And for some of you that are trying to explain it away again and sitting there and say, well, this is the Old Testament God, not the New Testament God, let me just remind you of God doing the same thing at the beginning of the church When Ananias and Sapphira decide that they're going to lie about how much money that they ultimately ended up giving, how much they made off a particular piece of property, and what does God do? God strikes them dead. Same exact thing, New Testament. And so what what, what, what do we do with all this? It just, again, means that God has continually desired the holiness and the lives of his people. You know, on occasion, people will boast, you know, the church isn't what it used to be. A lot different now. Look at it with its big buildings. Look at it with all of its budgets. We have 16 campuses in the metropolitan area. Pastor's picture is up on all the billboards. Boy, that will be the day, won't it? It's hard about turning people away. But there's Pastor's Mike's face on there. Why would you do that? And this is the church, and we talk about all of its success. And you know what? I, I would I would say one thing. I would say Certainly in some ways we've progressed as a church, but I think in the area of holiness we've regressed horribly. I think one of the reasons why it's so easy to be able to gather people is because we lowered the standards so incredibly much. And we do it with a false sense of teaching of the grace of God. Let me me try to be very clear here. We are all saved, and the only way you can be saved is by grace through faith alone you cannot work, you cannot do, you can do nothing to be able to obtain salvation in any way, shape, or form. We are a bunch of sinners saved by grace through faith alone. That's why we're here to worship our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's it. And we live by grace. Amen? We don't live this life and sit back and go, well, he saved me. Now I need to be good enough in order for God just to be able to love me, and I don't want to ruin it, and and I just want to do it. We live by the grace of God. But here's the false notion. In many churches, what people are ultimately saying is they take grace and they twist it to mean, hey, guess what? God saved me from the penalty of sin, and now because grace abounds, my sin will abound all the more. That what happens is, is now I have the right to be able to do whatever it is that I want because I am saved by grace, and that is a complete misinterpretation and understanding of what the grace of God means. It is not for me to live whatever way that I want, but the great thing about the good news of Jesus Christ is now I can live the life that I want. See, when God saved you and I by grace, he changed you and me, and now the things that used to be so desirable aren't as desirable anymore. Yes, the parts of my flesh still want it, but the who I truly am doesn't want to be a part of that because I love God and I love the things of God, and I don't want to do the things that hurt the heart of God. So what I want to do is stay away from the stuff, and now God has given me a new heart to want it and the spirit of God inside of me to be able to live the life that he wants me to do. Question, do you fall a million times? Absolutely. Do we seek God's forgiveness all the time? Absolutely. But do we sit back and think that it doesn't matter what we do or where we go or what we say? That is a complete misunderstanding of the fact that God has called us to holiness. You know, it's interesting to me because churches are all trying to beat each other out on how big of a crowd they can get. They, they often sit there and go, well, you know, if we just get a bigger building and better programs and greater lights... Just better lights. We, we just got to do it. And some of you are sitting there going, well, why did we get new lights? Well, uh, because I'm a hypocrite. No, you're missing the point. <laughs> See, the reason, what, what they think, here's, here's the key, just understand this. God's plan for his church and for his people to evangelize the world, the key to that has always been the holiness of his people, that they were to be set apart, that they were to be unlike the world in which they lived. They were to be unique, a peculiar people, staying away from the things that are sinful of this world. Why? Because they don't care for them. The world wants them. They think there's fulfillment in there. The people of God sit there and they say, I'm not fulfilled in that anymore. Why? Because I'm fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. That's where I find my fulfillment. And these are the things that are contrary to God. I don't want to have anything to be able to do with these things. That was God's plan for a lost world to be able to look at that and say, how is it that you're not seeking these things anymore? Because I've sought them, and there's no fulfillment in them. And the people of God say, yeah, I tried too. No fulfillment in them. But there is in the person of Jesus Christ. Instead, the world has gotten so big and so complicated and so sharp and so smooth with all of its big lights, but it's lacked holiness to be able to truly draw people. So now we have to put fake lights up to be able to draw them with something because there's not enough holiness in God's people and God's church to be able to attract them in the way that God had initially intended through the righteous living of God's people through the grace of God. Amen, that's really good stuff. Well, thank you very much. I, I appreciate that. Well, how, thank you, brother. I, I, I think I will. number three, point three, no simple response. How do we respond to all this? How do we respond to all this? Well, it's funny because there was no simple response in David. Uh, In fact, we see this complicated response with him with all these different emotions. Look at the different ways that he responds. In verse eight, he, he becomes angry, he becomes angry. He's angry. Why? Because he, like many of us, thought that this was, in other words, we, he thought too lowly of man's sin and too, 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 that God's judgment was too heavy, and he gets angry at God for this, that God just kind of reacted. He, he really didn't have any just purpose of doing this, and, and so he's angry. And some of you might be the same way. I never know why people walk out, by the way. They just might be, you know, hey, I feel dizzy or whatever, and it's okay. But sometimes I have to wonder if what you're preaching is why people are getting out. By the way, now would be a great time for you to leave so we could talk about you. But, but just say, you're like, oh, no, I'm going to be late for work now. I can't go out. No, just go. It's okay. But my point with all this is this, is that, is that people become very angry. I remember even hearing the gospel for the very first time and being offended by it. Were you offended by it? If you're offended by it, then you probably heard it correctly. Because what we find out is that we were sinners before God. And and, and so there's an offense to it. And sitting back going, well, wait a minute. You mean God? You mean God, the God I think of and I have in my mind, that he would send somebody to hell for doing right things? That's not the kind of God that, that I serve. And you said, because you don't serve the right God. And so we become angry with it. Seems like it's too much. But guess what happens over a period of time? After you begin to hear the offense of the gospel and you're angry for a while, all of a sudden the Holy Spirit begins to convict you. And I think this is what happens with David. I think what happens very next is he goes from angry to being fearful. Look at the Bible says in verse 9. He says, and David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? Here's what I thought. I think he was angry at first. The more he began to think about it. And the more that he began to think that God had warned them against doing such. And that he should have never reached out to grab the ark. He began to sit there and says, man, I should have never commanded them to go get the ark. And the way that they did it. And so he began to sit there and say, man, if he was guilty and God struck him down, guess what? I'm just as guilty. I can't be in the presence of God. I'm a sinner. Do you remember this happening in your own life when you were come to faith in Christ? And so what ends up happening? He, he says, Sir, he, he doesn't want to have anything to do with it. So he actually sends it to a home of a man by the name of Obed-Edom. Why? Because he was probably a Levite and he was probably the closest house that they could find. They don't want anybody else touching the ark and dying. So they said, he's the closest one. Just put it in his home. And guess what happened over a period of time? Obed-Edom and his entire household begin to be blessed. And David's heart begins to soften. And he begins to sit there and he realizes this, that God would, did not dwell among them to harm them for the purpose of harming and killing them, but to prosper them and to love them and to be able to bless them. That's what God's plan is. We read about that, don't we, in John chapter 3, verse 17, that Jesus didn't come into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be what? Saved. That's his plan that he ultimately gives us. And so I wonder here, so we see these different emotions. We see him becoming angry. We see him then becoming fearful about being in the presence of God. When he finds about it, he ends up wanting to go, and he calls for the ark, and he brings it to him. But this time, what do they do? They do it the right way. And notice this. This time, the emotion is joy. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. And so David and all the house of Israel, he brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. He went from being angry to then being fearful to now what? Rejoicing. And you know what's really interesting to me? Is he's rejoicing in doing the very things that he overlooked to do before. Now they get the priest. Now they move it the way that God has said. And these commands of God, he goes, are not, are not wearing on them. They're not troublesome for them. It's something that he truly wants to do. Why is that? I think this is the response of faith in Christ. When he looks back at this man, Yuza, and he sees God strike him down, he begins to understand that the fact that God didn't wipe them all out was the grace of God. That he would strike one down And spare many? Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Sounds like the gospel of Jesus Christ. It means that one man would perish and take on the sins of the world and the wrath of God would pour out on that one man until his wrath was completely and utterly satisfied towards the rest so that we can live. And how live? Live in joy of being set free and forgiven. And so he rejoices. And what is the natural response of that? The natural response of understanding that we are saved by the grace of God is to seek to live holy lives before him. It's not something that we hate. It's not something that we're bitter about. It's not something that we're trying to sneak out about, around about. You know what it is? It means that we want to be able to do it. Hey, guys, let me just share a couple things with you. For some of you this morning, the truth is, God's just not the center of your life. He's just not at the center. You're a believer in Jesus Christ. You love him. But because of your much busyness, because of your much serving, without you even knowing it, you're doing it all apart from an intimate, live, real relationship with God. You need to invite him back in the middle of it and say, I don't want to go anywhere, do anything apart from you. This isn't about my much doing. This is about me enjoying this relationship with Jesus. There are some of you here that sit there and, you know, you you might hear and you might be angry this morning by what is being preached. And, and, and you, know, the, you know, the bottom line is it's kind of, uh, you know, you've heard us talk about building and we might need to build, and that, that's coming, by the way, and we're talking to some architects and they're supposed to be getting us some plans, and as soon as we find something out, we'll, we'll talk to you about it. But the truth of the matter is, is my plan is just keep preaching about God striking people dead, and we'll never have to build, right? <laughs> it's the anti-growth movement. the truth of the matter is is men women children you are saved by grace through faith alone and you will never be able to and you are you are to live by grace through faith alone but out of your love and your appreciation from God, we don't want to go back into the same things that we used to get in. Can I, can I just say this? Let me say this one thing. I've often seen people who come from this, this real party lifestyle, where they were just getting drunk all the time, and they were living that kind of life, and they get out of it. And it's interesting, because they come into the church, and then there's some church you know people that sit there, and rightfully so, I'm not getting into this right now. Well, I kind of am, but where people just sit back and go, well, look, it's not inherently evil to be able to drink a beer, and I would agree with all that, that kind of stuff. And, and, and they might push it a little bit far where they're like, oh, you're you're drinking beer, that's that's the devil and everything. And, And they may be a little bit theologically off a little bit there, okay, to be able to throw everything in and be able to say it wrong. But you know what I love about them? They hated everything that had to do with where they used to be before they came to faith in Christ. And at least they get that. Now, we can deal with the rest of it. Have them not, you know, like beat other people up in small group, you know, if they drink something. But, but you know, we can, we can work through that. But here's the bottom line. Men, women, and children, God cares about where you go, what you see, what you do. That it, it, He still cares about it, and we should care about it as well. And finally, we just need to be able to rejoice. Some of us need to leave this place rejoicing. I don't want you to leave this place mad. I do want you to leave in fear, but fearfully rejoicing. That's the, that's the sweet spot for a believer. That we sit there and we go, you know what, this God is, is a good God. He's a holy God. He is not, by the way, look how we've changed. Throughout church history, we've gone from early church would not even speak the name of God or even write out his full name. They would take out some of the consonants and not add everything in it. To this day, uh, of young people in youth groups typing up shirts that say, Jesus isn't my homeboy, right? Huge shift in the way that we view God. We've got to be able to get back to that point to where there is a reverence to know who this God is, that he is a holy God. And we need to not only have that healthy fear of that, but yet rejoice in it as well. Because there is nothing more pleasing and fulfilling to be able to walk in the statutes and obedient to God, knowing that you're only doing it by the grace of God of he who saved you. Let's pray. Lord, we love you. We thank you, Lord, for this morning. God, I thank you for those who are here. As we come closing up together, God, I just thank you for the power of your word. Help us to respond. Here's the invitation. God, those who do not know you, may they respond in faith where they are, calling out for mercy of grace. God, I, I pray that if they don't know about you, if they are confused about this whole thing, that they would have confidence to be able to come and to be able to talk with me, either during the service, after the service, whatever it is. We just want to get good counsel with them. God, I pray for some. It will be that type where they sit there and go, man, I've been way too flippant with the holy things of God, way too comfortable with the holy things of God. God, I repent, turn from that. God, I want you at the center of all that I do, leading me in all that I do. And God, I just pray that some, that it's been so long since they've rejoiced, Let them rejoice in who they are in Christ. Let them rejoice today that you are a holy God, taking away all of that judgment, taking away that death and that penalty of sin. We rejoice in you. We love you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? I'll be down here. And as always, if you want to come and pray, come and pray. Altar is open. Just make your decisions now. I know some might come for membership. You do that now at this point.